0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tales from Tolt. My name is Dwayne Davidson, your host. This is a program where we discuss the fascinating and rich history of that place we call the Sonoma Valley, basically from Monroe to North Bend. everybody to another episode of Tales from Tolt. Dwayne Davidson, your host. Today, i got a special guest because it happens to be my son-in-law, Preston. Preston, you want to introduce yourself?
1: Hey, everyone. Uh, My name is Preston Davidson. I am a a paralegal at a family law firm here in Tri-Cities.
0: Preston was very helpful uh, for me uh, to interpret some of the legal documents I came across in researching this new episode. So I asked him to join me, and I'm really delighted that he said yes. And this is gonna be a little bit different than uh, some of the previous tales from Toltz that you've listened to, because we're gonna be talking about uh, a big family feud that happened and maybe one of the first murders that happened in the town of Carnation. I actually think this actually happened before Carnation was a town or Tolt was before incorporation, because this was in the uh, turn of the last century. And so let's set the stage a little bit about what went on here. We have these two families and just so all of you know about what we're talking to this, so you can put some reference to this. This is the area that's about two miles south of Carnation, present day Carnation, I think it's Northeast 8th. It's by the area known today as Full Circle Farms. It's along the mouth of the Griffin Creek. The McDevitts had a farm that was right on the riverbank and the Mandervilles were just slightly to the north right at the mouth of griffin creek so these two farms uh the mandervilles and the mcdevits were neighboring farms pioneer families all the way back something else in common is that both of these were ran by the uh, matriarch individuals because in both cases the the men had passed away i'm not exactly sure what happened to mr manderville i think i heard it one time but i forgot We learned through researching this case that Mr. McDevitt died from a runaway team of horses, the frightening way of passing away for sure. So the women were out there raising two large families, two Irish immigrant families, and trouble started to develop between these families. It all stemmed, we think we know, or we do know, where one of the biggest contentions between these two families started from.
1: And Preston, you want to tell us what happened? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, Maggie McDevitt, she went missing in 1894. And the town was understandably really upset because they weren't sure where she was. She was described as being young, beautiful, vibrant, um, someone who got along with everyone she knew. And the newspaper had a bunch of different um, theories about where she was. Um, someone thought she was in San Francisco. Someone thought she was staying with her sister or something. Maybe she was in the North Pole visiting Santa Claus. But there was someone else <laughs> who said that maybe she eloped. Yeah. So there was some evidence that perhaps she eloped, which is strange because she was 16 years old. So she was underage. Wow. And they, that she had eloped and they actually knew that the person
0: that she may have eloped with was one of the Mandervilles, the neighbor to the north, Mm -hmm. a George Manderville who was considerably older than her.
1: Right, right. Um, In fact, the newspaper said that she wasn't there when they were picking up their marriage license. Um, Mr. Manderville showed up with a friend of his who had a signed affidavit saying that she was of age, which is obviously not true.
0: That's kind of interesting, just right there. So they were kind of hiding the fact that this was a very young girl and the county auditor who issued marriage licenses then would have said, how old are you? (laughs) Because you did not have parental consent. Because according to some of the research that we'd done, we learned that even though she got along with the public really well, she was very involved with the community. She was involved with activities that happened at the Pleasant Hill School, which was one of the country's, schools that was located in that area at that time she didn't get along with one particular person that was her mother and I said that she had a lot of contention between Anne McDevitt and her and so when she showed up after being scaring the town half to death for a couple days she showed up with wahoo Mr. George Manderville and they were a married couple and so Uh, At least she was alive and well. Unfortunately, it made for some issues between the Mandervilles and McDevitts, which were just increased and manifold after it was revealed that after a relatively short period of time, George Manderville abandoned his wife and basically uh, moved back to home. Census records tell us that he moved back with his relatives without getting a divorce and abandoned his uh, 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 Maggie McDevitt, this young girl. And that really angered her younger brother who some of the documents that we have reveal that maybe he was a little bit contentious of an individual to begin with.
1: Yeah, really hot under the collar.
0: Yeah, they also described George and that this is all just what we've read. So we didn't know these people personally, so we don't know one way or the other, but yeah, this is hearsay. This is hearsay. <laughs> but it, some of us said that George had kind of a drinking problem and that he was a very good cook, very dependable. He was a cook for a camp outside of Preston, but at the uh, Preston, Washington, but at the, um, uh, he seemed to drink most of his profits. And he was obviously doing it that night there was some contention between, there was some arguments between these two individuals when they came in close encounters with each other before, but on this fateful night in August of 1903 at about 10 p.m. in a saloon in Washington at approximately 10 p.m., all heck broke out. And that was when they were both in the bar together. Evidently started off, according to some accounts, as halfway cordial, but quickly.
1: It quickly escalated into um, uh, Mr. McDevitt having his innards protruding outward, to quote the court document. He was, he was stabbed to death.
0: Just gruesome. By a knife, he was just gruesomely stabbed four times, I think he said, four major wounds to yeah. the body. They say they summoned a doctor. They, the closest doctor in those pioneer times was in the town of Sequoia. And they hadn't even got a chance to get a doctor there. And he had died uh, early that very next morning. And I'm surprised he even lived that long. Yeah. Um, uh, to, to tell you the truth. So what happened next? Well, George Manderville, evidently, once again, hearsay, but pretty obvious, The probably inebriated. But he immediately felt remorse. Some alleged, there's this other individual, this other, uh, that we can't quite explain, by the name of Powell, that um, seemed to be transfixed on the murder weapon. Um, uh, We know for a fact that he took the murder weapon away from the scene and took it home for whatever reason. He seems to have been encouraging of a fight between the two of them. But regardless, George Manderville went to the town policeman, um, I think probably the only policeman, house to turn himself in. And the wife was reluctant to let him inside. But because of the coldness of, uh, or just, I'm sorry, at August, I don't know actually how cold it was. But felt sorry for him and let him sleep on the kitchen floor until her husband came home from night patrol duties and um, took him to Seattle and uh, booked him into the King County Jail for uh, murder. And so he was uh, charged uh, with uh, first degree murder for this that was witnessed by, they say there was about half a dozen people in the bar, Mm -hmm. they say. And uh, by the way, I've contacted the folks at the Toll Historical Society about the location of the saloon because I've never heard of the proprietor name that was involved that they associated in this article. Never heard that name before as a proprietor and uh, told, so we're going to follow up on that because that did seem like an unusual name. We're not exactly sure what building this actually happened at. But he turned himself in without incident, didn't have to be down or anything else like that. Uh, was immediately remorseful for what he had done apparently. Uh, Edward McDevitt uh, uh, passed away and, um, and a trial evidently fairly quickly was assembled and, was, uh, and convicted him for second degree murder. But that was kind of interesting because he wasn't originally charged with that, was he?
1: No, no, not at all. Um, the jury evidently felt that the prosecution hadn't hadn't established that, that that the killing was premeditated. They 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 felt like the evidence had pointed more to a to a crime of passion, like a heat of the moment type of thing.
0: Hmm. Would you say uh, this might be kind of unfair to put you on the spotlight? This, but would you say that maybe there was more? It appeared the juries hadn't. M- greater ability to set and have judgments on what they may be convicting for and that's more in the realm of the plea dealing and things that happened before the trial amongst the attorneys today but back then the jury seemed to be empowered with that kind of ability to do
1: yeah it seems so that's kind of odd actually yeah
0: yeah so they definitely felt that they needed to have a little bit more compassion over him and that there was a feeling that maybe it was not premeditated. Is that what you think that maybe possibly the jury was thinking?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And we actually have some evidence to suggest that that's indeed what they were thinking. And that is because first accounts were
1: bringing in Mr. Powell again. First accounts was Powell was involved. Right, right. Um, So there was conflicting testimony evidently where some witnesses said that Powell provided the the murder weapon in the first place and encouraged him to and encouraged him to, um, to kill uh, Mr. McDevitt. Right. But there was other testimony that, um, Mr. Mandeville had brought the knife with him to the bar, which would demonstrate his intent to, um, kill Mr. McDevitt.
0: So the prevailing, uh, the facts and evidence or whatever you want to call it (laughs) at the time seems to suggest that the jury felt that, uh that mr powell had brought the knife and that uh and that there was a reason for um, a more leading sentence on mr mcdevin right right now subsequently we found out that mr powell was 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 determined that he didn't provide the knife and so he got off on his own charges and he actually was released because they said you didn't bring the knife The unfortunate thing, there's already a second degree conviction that happened partly because
1: of, because of the fact that he had brought it. (laughs) So that's really bizarre, is it not? Yeah, yeah, the two, uh, two decisions, two court decisions conflicted with one another.
0: And so then it went to the Supreme Court. And that really is when, so I got a copy of the Supreme Court document, and Uh, It's a, what, about five, six page document? Uh, Yeah, yeah. And tried to read it and couldn't make heads or tails out of it. (laughs) Partly because of the way they wrote things back then. There was lots of those type of uh, vesses and forthwith and all the... (laughs) To wit. (laughs) To wit (laughs) (laughs) language that made it really kind of bizarre for me to understand and and so forth. So because my... uh, uh, good son-in-law is a paralegal. He was over uh, here a couple of nights ago. And I said, would you interpret this for me and tell me what it says? And he got, it got wrapped up into this case too, and then decided to help me with this episode today. So when we uh, come back, we'll take a break right now. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about this case. And we'll talk about this appeal for uh, uh, the second degree conviction that was made and what materialized from
1: that. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Valley talk and info. Join us for our weekly paranormal radio show, Northwest Phenomenon, each Sundays at 7 p.m. Have a story you'd like to share? Call our Northwest Phenom hotline 24-7 775-990-5151 or you can email me on my website onairmario.com all calls and emails are confidential listen on demand subscribe to our podcast itunes spotify stitcher google play search northwest phenomenon we'll see you sunday at 7 p.m right here on valley 104.9
0: Hi, I'm Chris Heim, inviting you to join me in the Global Village for the best in music from all around the globe. We highlight new releases, rare and classic recordings, birthdays, holidays, and a host of features, specials, and unique concert performances, all drawing on styles and influences from many different corners of the world. Great sounds from all around the globe in the Global Village, Thursday nights from 7 till 9, here on Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Northwest eclectic music. Welcome back, everybody. Tales from Tolt. Today, we're talking about one of the first murders that probably ever happened in the town, and it was a gruesome one with lots of interesting facts and details and really kind of a saga about two conflicting families like the Hatfields and the McCoys of Tolt, Washington, uh, the McDevitts and the Mandervilles, and uh, especially between George Manderville and Edward McDevitt, uh, some pronounce it McDevitt, and Um, The contention was all started because of McDevitt's uh, sister, Maggie, uh, she was uh, was married at a very young age to this George Manderville. Marriage did not last very well. And actually, a census actually has him back at home uh, living with his family. And the census uh, enumerator never did pick up Maggie. She just was off the map by then. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her in just a moment. But um, it was just a second degree conviction. I would have thought that the prosecution thought that they made off on this pretty uh, uh, easily because the prosecutors felt that they kind of got gypped out of a first degree conviction because of the fact that they had he had a, a person helping him with the commitment but that made it not premeditated. Like, hey, you know, a fight gonna and well, he used this knife, well, that clearly would not be premeditated murder. Yeah, no, that would just be heat of the bulb and, you know, it would be a crime of passion. But McDever brought there or uh, I'm sorry, Manderville brought the knife all along. And that was found out in a second trial. So I would have thought that they would have felt satisfied with this. But evidently, there was some in the community that felt that maybe justice wasn't really truly served here, that this really was maybe more of a self defense. And so an appeal was made. And, President, can you elaborate? Why did this go right to the state Supreme
1: Court? Well, um, so today, when a conviction is appealed, it would go to the Washington um, Court of Appeals. But the Washington Court of Appeals wouldn't be established for another 60 years. Oh, so this would go right to the state supreme court? Yeah, straight to the supreme court.
0: And the trial court judge was a, a noted judge that was great reputation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: However, the uh, this this document that where they are pleading their case for
1: a uh, set aside of this conviction, they're not very nice to the judge. Yeah, no, it's, it's honestly just a, a very scathing indictment of his um, ability to do his job, really.
0: And what were the particular issues that they took the most exception
1: to? Um, in particular, they had a problem with, his, um, with how he gave the jury instructions. So um, at one point, um, they, they talk about how, um, how they were complaining of when the judge said, but a person upon whom assault is made, which is not felonious in its character, as one who was assaulted by another without a deadly weapon and with intent to inflict upon the person assault at a mere beating is not justified in killing his assailant. And a person upon whom a not felonious assault is made is not justified in repelling such an assault without a deadly weapon used in a deadly manner. Now, court documents, um, they're written in a a different language, really, in legalese, because attorneys think that they are important or something. (laughs) Like even today, I'll draft documents, which will say something to the effect of, comes now petitioner by and through his Mm -hmm. or her attorney of record, Mm -hmm. you're like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Well, so it it wasn't even difficult for me and I draft legal documents for a living, but um, essentially they were arguing that that the judge did not adequately explain the statute that Mr. Mandeville was being charged under.
0: Interesting, interesting. And they draw uh, quite a few other uh, issues with the judge. I do find it interesting that there seems to be a suggestion that just shows you how some things stay the same and other things actually change over time. There does seem to be a slightly different perception back then about what self-defense was as opposed to today. That back then, you really had to be, not how how did they define it? Not to stop what might just turn out to be a severe beating, you had to actually have reason to believe that they were intending on killing you. Right. So it's truly, it wasn't self-defense of a beating. It was self-defense of my preservation of life. That is different because right now we can basically, you can plead self-defense on just a mere fact you think this person's going to come in and you're not absolutely sure that they may kill you, but there's a chance of it. And you can actually plead, Self-defense in that case, right? Yeah, or maybe
1: they're trying to take your TV or something. You just shoot them.
0: It's it's really interesting that the judge the judge said that, but they just went on and on on the judge. What happened about
1: this What happened with the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court ultimately decided that Judge Tallman uh, adequately did give the jury instructions, and that the defense um, that that their evaluation of the of the judge's jury instructions were not valid, and dismissed the case altogether.
0: Wow. And quite forcefully. And so they really validated the trial court's conclusions of fact and the juries and basically upheld the conviction. No exceptions,
1: right? Right. Which was very bold on the part of the defense, you know, because they pretty much they pretty much got away with murder. Right. But they tried to get the conviction overturned altogether. Very bold. Right, right.
0: There must It just suggests that back then when I think people just generally had more of a law and order type of feeling about things, it does seem to suggest, and we're doing lots of speculation here, but it sure does seem to suspect that some people felt that justice hadn't been done here and that he must have been really just defending himself. Something was going on. For them to take this bold move and take this all the way Supreme Court, don't you don't you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And what's really interesting it kind of proves that point of where the general perception of the community might have been is that he didn't serve his sentence anywhere near
1: his full sentence, fifteen years, did he? No, no, he was sentenced on uh, July twentieth, nineteen oh five, and he was. And he was discharged on Christmas Day, 1909. Well, Merry Christmas to him! Yeah, <laughs> that's what quite a Christmas
0: they release, it, they release. someone on the on the Christmas holiday, so that is very very interesting. That that is a very short sentence, and it was only a couple of years after this appeal, and this was handed down from the state supreme court, right? So something's going on here. And so I found this very interesting, doing a little bit more research about this and talking to the folks in the Toll Historical Society about some of the things that they have on hand. There is a memorandum, uh, uh, I might want to call it a book or some kind of manuscript that was written by a family member, a present day family member of the Mandervilles to try to bring some closure in this and their family genealogy and tried to make sense out of this and they kind of wrote this and they were not being apologetic of, you know, they totally acknowledge that George took a person's life, but they were kind of examining the facts and things. And one of the things I found most interesting about this document is there's several interesting little facts in there. And one of them is a copy of a letter that was provided to, um, I'm not sure if it was introduced at the time of the original sentencing or if it was to the parole board, overviewing sentences. I think that that's what it was after he was already incarcerated at Walla Walla. Um, uh, asking for an early release and asking for seat from George. And its author was Anne McDevitt, mother to Maggie, mother to Edward who was slain, that's profound.
1: That is just, don't you find that just like? Yeah, you never hear stuff like that happening. I mean, you hear stories of uh, people forgiving for their uh, their child's killer, but never asking for clemency for their child's killer. That is just,
0: uh, uh, so there's something going on. There must've been, some people felt that, you know, because of maybe how many times prior uh, uh, problems ensued between these two. Who knows that Edward was really, truly kind of a hothead and that they and things got quickly out of hand, and they didn't need to. Uh, whatever the case may be, there's people that really felt that the justice wasn't done here. Obviously, the attorneys that were first involved because they boldly took this to the state's Supreme Court. And then, obviously, Someone prevailed because they got a pretty early release on this individual. So someone got convinced convicted or convinced, I should say, I'm sorry, convinced of this. And I think it would have to be said that one of the profound things that would have led to that was a letter from the mother of the slain victim saying, uh, it's time for assault to move on. I think that, that that's really, really pr- pretty profound. So uh, this was a uh, uh, interesting case. Person, I can tell you that one of the things that kind of perplexes me a little bit is what, what happened to Maggie? And we got a little bit more kind of sad news to report. And that is that the start of all this was this eloping of and then what not just the eloping, but then subsequent desertion of her as a wife that had happened and, and the reason for contention between the families uh, that, um, that Maggie kind of went into being this person that's described as vibrant, attractive, liked by all that knew her, to a later article saying that Edward was very um, upset with his brother-in-law because he had, in his opinion, uh, led his sister down to a road of, of um, well, he, uh, where she was described as a notorious woman. What does that mean? <laughs> it doesn't sound good. Yeah, I would not want to be notorious. (laughs) No. (laughs) Notorious, notorious woman. That sounds really kind of sad and Strong words. Strong words, indeed. And here's the real kicker, is that she
1: uh, passed away when? She passed away in July of 1905, about a week before Mr. Manderville was sentenced. Now, just
0: how profound is that? And we have done. I have done exhaustive uh, searches on the internet uh, because most of these records are all digitized for newspapers that could have some of account. Because she buried clearly, she buried in the Carnation Cemetery right next to her brother, uh, the 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 per, uh, Edward that was uh, along with some other family members, the dad that we've heard about earlier. But she's buried right there with her brother, Maggie Maggie McDevitt. Find it interesting that she was still legally married, but she was buried as a McDevitt, so that she didn't take her married name. Um, uh, uh, she's she's buried there. Clearly, the date is just days before, like you said, a week before sentencing, sentencing of her husband for the murder of her brother. So this is along with Anne, poor Maggie was right in the middle of all this and yet we can't find a death certificate or any newspaper article anywhere. And I've looked extensively to try to find some evidence on what happened to her. So we can assume the worst that maybe she, you know, uh, well, I'm not gonna say it, but I mean, I don't know. And I'm gonna continue to try to research because I know somewhere we'll find out what happened to poor. I can't believe that she, she was was, Harmed by the person because they want to be so lenient. They wouldn't be being so lenient for him later on if, yeah. that, if that was the case, if there was any suspect that that went on at all. Uh, so um, maybe that'll be an upcoming episode of Tales from Total where we talk about what happened to Maggie McDevitt.
1: Who knows? Maybe we'll solve a 120
0: year old mystery. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Interesting times. This is not what you expect from the quaint little place of of carnation washington a story coming out of there or something like this but it happened and i it was an interesting story and i appreciate you and sharing it with me today yeah thanks for having me on so folks that's it for this week please tune in next week as we continue to explore the history of the socoma valley thank you folks